0: Hey everybody, Todd here, and I swear we're going to get started in just one minute, but I wanted to take a moment to remind you, if you're enjoying the show, if you like what we do on the web, social media, you name it, take a look at our new page over at patreon.com slash codewriteplay to find out how you might be able to get involved, what we can do for you, and uh, just take a look around and see what we're doing there. So again, that's patreon.com slash codewriteplay. Sit back and enjoy. Good evening fans, Tim Kittrow here, the voice of
1: NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by Codewriteplay.com. Whoop-boom-shakalaka!
0: My mom gave birth in nineteen eighty five. I was blue within a Pac Man ghost, barely alive. In the Cold War, my only blanket was Tetris. I played rampart, we'll rake and rampage the world for breakfast. The laundry mat was my sanctuary, the arcade was my church. I thought I was rastan so for evil I was. Searching. okay I'm i'm good if you're good. Yep, let's awesome. roll. Awesome. David L. Crowd, thank you for coming on. How you doing? I'm doing
1: pretty well, Todd. How about
0: you? I'm doing just fine. I was uh, I was excited when you agreed to come on because I realized uh, between then and now, I've picked up, I was going to say three books, but I found a fourth one this morning that I had collected from different uh, sites, yeah. and you were the author of each of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I was a bigger fan of yours than I even realized. So oh, I, awesome. uh, stroke my ego a little more. What uh, what are the books? I know, right? I, I started with um, Stay a While and Listen. I picked it up on Amazon. I think that was probably close to when it came out. Later on, I had Audible credits and found Dungeon Hacks, mm-hmm. which was cool, and um, Shovel Knight, obviously during the Humble Bundle crossover right. event with uh, Boss Fight, and then I figured out you wrote uh, Making Fun Stories of Game Development, is that right? Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. Really like that one as well. So I've been all over your catalog. <laughs>
1: well, that's cool, man. I'm glad you're enjoying them.
0: So tell me, I, I mean, you're such a prolific author. I want to hear a little bit about uh, sort of the scope of your work and how you balance, how do you ter- determine what to focus on? I mean, what does it look like for you?
1: Um, it's uh, it's a mess, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really, at any given time, I'm working on two or three things. Uh, I'm a full-time writer, primarily doing freelance for Shack News. I'm the... Long Reads editor over there, and what that means is I write what are oftentimes book-length features. Um, The latest one actually just went up. It's Monday, April 15th now. On Friday the 12th, I published uh, Icon of Sin, which was a seven-chapter look at John Romero's sigil, his uh, unofficial Doom expansion coming out in May. Right. And before that on Shack News, I published Beneath a Starless Sky, which was a deep, deep dive into uh pillars of eternity one and two with obsidian and also look at the uh infinity engine catalog i talked to people from bioware about like Baldur's gate and one and two yeah and then the the shovel knight books they won't listen one so they won't listen two is coming out later this year i'm working on another book that's secret for right now but it'll also be out this summer and had a novel second novel come out uh, last fall, mm-hmm. around the same time as Shovel Knight. In fact, it was kind of funny. I was expecting the sky to open up and and dump on me, and it did. Uh, from both of those publishers, I got final edits back with requests to finish the edits in all urgency <laughs> and get yeah. them turned around. Uh, and then I just sold my sixth short story. So, yeah, it's it's been busy, but I like to stay busy. I'm a self-professed workaholic. It's what I enjoy doing.
0: So you said uh, you had finished like three books last year alone on your uh, blog. I assume you didn't finish another one after that.
1: (laughs) I don't remember. It's probably at this point. Yeah.
0: (laughs) We probably crossed paths with a few of the same people from Obsidian because I got to visit a little over a year ago. While I was in in town, I made a friend or two there on Twitter, and they said, "Yeah, come on through." Like everybody there was so cool.
1: They're super nice and accommodating. Really, really open. Didn't try to put any PR spin mm-hmm. on anything. Uh, yeah, the Obsidian folks are great. I love those. I love those folks over there.
0: It's awesome. So I mean, you, you've got to be the kind of writer who who never really goes, "Well, hey, writers block. That's it." You know, we'll yeah. come back later.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's um, when it's your full-time job, it's like if you were to go to work in an office or subway or, or, you know, you're running a company, you can't just say, well, I can't figure out my job today. I guess I won't do it, you know. Yeah. The thing about writer's block, I'm not completely sure it exists. I think the block is usually something else that is, is affecting your writing. It's not usually the writing itself. Working on multiple projects, I feel, tends to help because if I do get blocked up on one, I can just say, well, I'll just work on this other one that's going really well. And usually the kind of the smooth ride of the other one, if I'm enjoying it, kind of gets me excited about writing and projects overall. So by the time I jump back to the one that was giving me trouble, I'm ready to go again, re-energized.
0: Nice. Well, maybe that's the, the key you, you talk to so many people in your line of work, just and you're not just a nonfiction author, but you do short stories, like you said, novels. But you talk to so many people for the books on game industry stuff. you I, I'm sure you don't get to do all of those in person. How do you normally conduct business?
1: Um, oftentimes through Skype, sometimes through Google Hangout. Occasionally I'll get someone who prefers to answer questions over email, mm-hmm. which has its pros and cons. Like on the, on the one hand, like they're doing the writing, which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just kind of figure out how to build a framework from from their uh, input. But I actually prefer to talk to people in person or over VoIP or, or what have you, because the problem is it can be a couple of things. One, you might have someone who gives really short answers and, you know, you have nothing to work with, where if they, yeah. whereas if they yeah. were talking to you, they might feel inclined to open up a bit more. Even ramble. And you probably know that like rambling can be a good thing because you can pick things out. Sure. Uh, the rambling to to flesh out later, but then you know also you can't really extrapolate new questions, so you end up having to go back and forth a few times over email, and they might get frustrated because it's taking longer than they planned. I mean, really, if you're if they even if they are the ones who request to do questions over email, um, it ends up taking up more of their time than they planned. Whereas uh, sometimes I can knock out you know a chapter's worth of information in an hour or two. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always try to talk to people in real time when I can.
0: And, and your ability to sort of uh, pick out the overall story between those those accounts is just uh, I, I think that's got to be the magic. I mean, at this point, you've run several successful Kickstarters and I mean, you've got people coming back from book to book. I think there's something to that. And I think it's probably the ability to, to bring that narrative out of all those accounts, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. And I I 100% agree. Um, That's why I always try to get as much input as possible. Because, well, first, you know, I tend to write about things that happened in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, which are, you know, decades ago, at this point. And so usually, you don't always want to, as a journalist, it's not that you don't trust your sources, but you don't want to just take them at their word that their account is the account, you definitely want to cross reference. And depending on the scope of the project, I get... uh, um ample opportunity to do that. You know, for, for Stay While well and Listen to I, I talked to close to eighty people. And so it's a lot of talking, a lot of transcribing, a lot of outlining, but the more you do that, the more a narrative through line does appear that you can kind of put together. And you have to be really careful putting those together because, you know, in fiction, if I'm making up the world, it's you know, everything goes according to my rules, but when you are writing about a real person's life. You want to make sure that you don't accidentally do them a, a disservice. So yeah, yeah. I, I work really hard to pick out those narratives. And yeah, I, just, I think the more you talk to someone and yeah, you know, you're right. I, I do talk to a lot of people, the, the, the easier it becomes to kind of sharpen your ear to pick out like, what's, what's the real story there and, and pull out, pull it out.
0: Before starting indie development, I spent a little bit of time freelance writing for industry stuff and, My very first uh, job was a a feature with different homebrew developers who do like old school retro stuff on like Dreamcast and NES and stuff like really cool stuff, really enjoyed talking to everybody. And but I, I know what you mean. Like it's you pick out this story out of what people are giving you, but you also have this constant like, am I inflicting something on this that didn't really exist? Or, you know, it's almost a paranoia. And I think it's probably healthy to have that.
1: Very healthy, very healthy, because it keeps you honest. You know, I'm I'm the sort of writer who I'll I'll wake up in the middle of the night going, you know, this thing that I wrote yesterday, it just doesn't ring true right now. I better go check. And it's usually that's that's a gut instinct you want to listen to.
0: Mm -hmm. So how many of your books have been with Boss Fight?
1: Um, Just one. Boss Fight's MO is they do one book with one author because they want every book to feature a new voice, to give a new perspective on... The game that's being written about, I think the, the newest one just came out last Tuesday. I think is Knights of the Old Republic, oh, yeah. uh, with, Alex, with Alex Kane. He's a, he's a great writer. Has uh, covered some of my books in the past, so we got to talk a lot. You know, Chris Kohler wrote the book about Final Fantasy V, which I think that was Boss Fight books number eighteen. Shovel Knight mine was number nineteen. So um, it's it's kind of fun too because now that I'm part of the Boss Fight family, I get those books in advance and I, I devour them because I love. Yeah volume they've written it's they're they're great
0: yeah it's it's the people the same people writing them i'm sure are, are the people who love reading them and it's exactly that kind of thing like there's just yeah. something about capturing that story behind a game they've really got they have sort of captured lightning in a bottle i think
1: exactly exactly
0: so other publishers you've worked with have you self-published and what else have you done
1: i've done a lot of self-publishing and traditional publishing through other publishers so shovel Knight, of course was boss fight I had a book come out in September 2017 called Breakout, How the Apple II Launched the PC Gaming Revolution, Mm -hmm. which is a bold claim, but I back it up. (laughs) Uh, That was published by Schiffer Publishing out in uh, Pennsylvania, just uh, one state over from me.
0: Hmm.
1: And then Heritage and Point of Fate, which are books one and two respectively in my uh, fantasy series for young adults, those were published by Taiki Books, a small press in uh, Canada. Other stuff I've self-published, Stay Well and Listen, Making Fun, Dungeon Hacks, that was all me. Because I knew that, like, Dungeon Hacks would be a really hard sell to a publisher. Because roguelikes, as I talk about in the book, are pretty niche. Roguelike elements and systems are not. They're everywhere in games these days. But, you know, you're talking text only, controlling a little at sign, going around a dungeon, uh, turn-based. That sort of thing would have been a hard sell So I wanted to do it myself so that I could write it the way I wanted to write it, while still keeping myself honest by working with an editor and everything. So yeah, most of my stuff these days is self-published. I'm moving more and more into traditional publishing for various reasons, but I still like self-publishing because over time, I've gotten a lot better at at marketing and publicity. So I'm able to drum up a lot more interest and subsequently subsequently a a better bottom line Mm -hmm. for myself than maybe a publisher could, depending.
0: And and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, one of the reasons I thought you'd be a, a perfect fit for this audience is I personally think there's a lot of crossover and you can see this going back in my shows. I've had several authors on. Uh, I think there's a lot of crossover in the role of indie developers, which I, I happen to have a good number of that listen to this show and authors who are both responsible for a lot of their own marketing. Ideally, you get a lot of good help from a publisher or, uh, you know, a store that picks up your book or anything like that. But there's there's a lot of hustle to it also. And, and looking at your Twitter account, I can see a lot of evidence of you going out there and, you know, pounding the pavement with your books and <laughs> that kind of thing. So so tell me what, what that side of your job looks like.
1: Um, it's gotten to the point where uh, I'm very routine oriented. So Mondays tend to be my catch up days. For things like this, for doing interviews, uh, for transcribing, for kind of thinking a few months out if I can, but also for pounding the, the pavement, the virtual pavement, um, as you put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have context at sites like the Shack News, of course, but also Polygon, Kotaku, Variety, Magazine, where I can kind of hit people up and say, hey – there's a book I have coming out. Would you be interested in reviewing it and or running an excerpt and or doing an interview and or what can I do to <laughs> with you to get some uh, – to help kind of spread the word? And so that sort of thing is something that I usually start on one day, but then you know how it is. Emails and texts and so forth come in sporadically over the next day or two or a couple mm-hmm. of hours, and um, I just kind of grab what I can and, and schedule as far in advance as I can because I always like to – be able to see what I have coming up and and prepare for, it. you know, get in the right state of mind.
0: Sure. Tell me how you, it seems like you managed to find a way to write about largely whatever you want to write about. So tell me how you sort of zero in on what you want to tackle a project about.
1: Sure. A lot, a lot of my, my best ideas, he said humbly, (laughs) come from, from subjects that interest me. I love Diablo The series, Uh, Diablo 1 was the first Blizzard game I played. Some of my friends started with Warcraft 1 and 2. I I missed that somehow. I was probably playing a lot of platformers on my Super Nintendo at the time. But uh, I had an uncle who uh, worked with the guys at Blizzard North. He was in IT. He had started his own company in Silicon Valley, and he provided some networking solutions for them. And so he would get me in on the friends and family alphas and betas. I played every Blizzard Alpha from Diablo 1 through WoW. And that was because around, I think, 2002, he he, uh, he and his friend uh, sold their company, and he joined Blizzard North. So he was actually part of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to go out there and meet people after graduating from high school. I was there... Days before Diablo 2 launched, everybody showed me around, show, showed me their Japanese imported PlayStation 2, which was cool. Yeah. Um, and so fast forward about seven years, 2007, I was doing freelance in Silicon Valley, and I ended up working with my uncle uh, who had started another gaming company and then hired some of the ex-Blizzard North guys: uh, Eric Sexton, Michio Akamura, Kelly Johnson, who were fantastic artists. John Moran, who was a programmer in Diablo One and Two, came up with a lot of Diablo 2's main systems, such as the he called the paper doll system that shows uh, the gear your character wears, actually you know reflects it accurately on your character. Mm-hmm. And I was working with them, and I said, you know, if you guys have some time, I'd love to talk to you about The Making of Diablo, because I couldn't believe no one had written about this yet. Yeah, um, Because, you know, really that game came up before the internet was ubiquitous. So there were there were bits and pieces of the story out there, but no one had ever taken them, knitted them together, and filled in the blanks. And so I just decided to do that because I love the games. Um, with this next book, it has to do with uh, arcade conversions. I loved playing them as a kid uh, games like, you know, Mortal Kombat on my Game Boy, which is, um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, rough. but you know, I, it was the only platform I had when Mortal Kombat came out. So of course I was going to get it. Uh, I just said, you know, I'd love to know what it was like to try to replicate arcade games on these various platforms. And so I just kind of started hitting people up and, and talking to them about that. And that's part of the, part of the secret project I'm working on really, you asked why you know how am I able to write about what I want to write about? The answer is really twofold. It's you know being interested in subjects and pursuing them, but also just having the discipline to know that if I'm going to start something, it needs to bring in money so that I can pay bills, and I need to have the discipline to work on it so that you know I can quit it 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 so that it goes from a pipe dream to something that's real and something that I can you know in the form of a check I can send my rental office basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. You you bring up Blizzard, and I I know probably not too many people know as much about it as you do, but knowing what you know and having followed their story for as long as you have, I mean, are you surprised by the direction you see them going with business now or things that pop up in the news? Like, do do you think it's, it's a natural extension of the way things have gone or have they taken some surprising turns?
1: I think that the direction they seem to be going is a product of the industry landscape today and also their, their so-called partnership with Activision. You know, right. Activision is, is putting pressure on them, which is something Blizzard's never really had to deal with. They ha- they've they been owned uh, since 1994. You know, they were only independent for three years. So before Warcraft or anything, they were just another porthouse. They're doing, you know, console conversions. Right. Um, right. And I, I guess that, you know, their their luck couldn't always hold. I mean, I think their games are great. But they also they have that Blizzard schedule, kind of like id, of, of when it's done. But Activism doesn't work that way. They want games released at regular intervals. And they had, Blizzard had those uh, mass, mass layoffs earlier this year. Mike Morheim, president, co-founder, stepped down. Um, I hope it doesn't compromise their quality, and I feel for the people who lost their jobs. But I can't yeah. say I'm yeah. surprised to see it happened. You know, it just it goes to show you that in the AAA on the AAA landscape, no one is immune to this. You can be the best developer ever, if you so much as wobble. You know, a lot of people might get shook loose.
0: Yeah, and everybody I've talked to in the AAA space has sort of, the people who had to move on from somewhere unexpectedly say. You know, it's unexpected, but at the same time, it's not, you know, you, you, this always hangs over you and, and then the people who have been somewhere for 10 years, like, um, our uh, friend from gearbox who I just talked to, who we'll be hearing from, uh, next week. He, he goes, I fully intended to come in here, plug in for a year, pick some stuff up, meet some people and find the next place I'll have to go. You yep. know, when, when the time comes and, and having lasted there like nine, 10 years now, he goes, it's, you know, <laughs> it's a dream come true, of course, because, right. uh. It's not as common as it used to be, I guess I would say. No. Uh, Other than that, you've also written about games at a time where uh, culture was a lot different sometimes. You've written about uh, cultures with different developers and stuff like that. What what kind of changes have you seen over time on that side of things?
1: Really just going from the wild, wild west to a very bureaucratic environment, which, again, I think is just evolution. Mm Mm-hmm. As companies like Atari and like Blizzard got better, they were either going to regiment and structure things, or just kind of fall apart. And some of them have fallen apart. Some are regimented to the point where hopefully, you know, we don't see uh, this stuff kink their creativity. Um, I was talking, me, to a guy from Atari just a little bit ago, he worked on uh, Missile Command um it's hard 2600 oh, wow. and he said you know I, I got to just pick that it wasn't a sign of me i just did whatever the hell i wanted <laughs> and he said those days are definitely gone um because first you know conversions used to be one programmer job jobs he didn't even have an artist he drew the space invaders on the screen and everything wow. he also did a, a version of space invaders as well as missile command and he said now you know you're one cog out of like 200 300 400 yeah um it's, it's the way things go. It's interesting because a lot of indie companies have to get bigger too. Uh, Yacht Club, obviously one of my favorite companies, uh, Shovel Knight is so great. But you have to wonder if they're going to have to grow at least a little bit depending on the type of game they want to make next. Um, so it's, it's really hard to keep companies small, which is a good thing. It's a good thing when they're small because then everyone has, you know, everyone leaves a bigger footprint. Everyone <laughs> feels like they have more ownership over the product. But on the other hand, it usually means you know everyone's pulled in every direction, so there are pros and cons, you know two sides to every coin. I think one company that seems to be bucking the odds is Capcom. I don't know how many times I've seen Capcom write their ship, but you know just with Resident Evil in particular, Resident Evil, the original series, the original formula kind of people got burned down on it, so they canceled four twice until they found a direction that worked and then Resident Evil Four became one of the best games of all time and then they ran that direction of the ground with 6 and then they turned that turned it around with 7 and then especially 2. I don't know if you've played the RA2 remake but it's fantastic.
0: Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's so
1: good. It's my favorite game of the year so far. And they just keep they just seem like a company that's that's willing to learn from their mistakes. I mean Street Fighter 5 started kind of on fire but they've really turned it around uh, and it might that might be because if you go if you look beyond the walls of the company they do have, you know, national cultures. Japan is different from the U.S. Sure, um, they treat their employees differently there than we do here. So, yeah, it's just there's a lot of growth, but um, it's almost like paradoxically, the the more things grow, the the more managers and, and suits just have to kind of tighten things and control things.
0: Yeah, and I it, you bring up Capcom, and for some reason, uh, because of the way the time we grew up and everything, I think of Konami at the same time. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, what, what different stories those were, but yeah. people, people go, I can't believe they would do this. And they would let go of people and they would stop and they would get out of games completely. And I go, no, I, I could see it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I love many, many Konami games, but I can see choosing a certain point where you go, you know, we've just got other stuff we could be doing.
1: Yeah, which is it's so weird for us to think about because you're right, Capcom and Konami are like two sides of the same coin. Like Konami I you know, growing up, I always thought of them as a video game company. They made a lot Me of like, oh, yeah. you know, they made not only Castlevania and Metal Gear, but you know, I loved a lot of the Ninja Turtle games from back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um and now they're just kind of like, nah, we're going to do pachinko machines and <laughs> it's still, it's hard to wrap my brain about that and hard about the way they uh, I guess allegedly, I don't know if it's ever been confirmed, treated um Hideyo Kojima who who made them so much money once upon a time yeah i guess it just i mean there's nothing nothing is nothing is binary nothing is is uniform which is also i think that's one of the scariest parts of working in this industry you can never really predict what's going to happen from one day to the next as a freelance writer i know that i've gone to bed with a job and woken up having to scramble because it was gone the next morning. And it's almost like the AAA space feels like that these days.
0: Yeah, the the very first site I wrote for, which was uh, zam.com, I <laughs> I was still linking to articles of mine like 4 or 5 months before I realized they had gone under completely. Wow. And <laughs> most of their writers had moved on. I wasn't focusing on on new editors and, and selling more articles at the time, so I didn't even know for several months. You
1: know? Right, right, right. That's but how it goes.
0: I got in touch with some of the people. I'm like, what what uh whatever happened? They're like the rest of us went to this other site months ago. What are you doing? Oh. <laughs> Developing, I don't know. But yeah. um you you talked to the yacht club games team uh for the Shovel Knight book, obviously, and that that had to be uh, pretty refreshing. Was it a refreshing experience to see people, uh, you know, sort of break away and do their own thing and get to follow the ind- indie pursuit for a while? I mean, was that a fun thing to write?
1: It was. It was a lot of fun to write because the Yacht Club um, co-founders have such fun personalities. I mean, they they didn't shy away from making clear that it was a, a very difficult work. Uh, you know, uh, near the end of the the book that I wrote, I talk about how you know all of them were basically broke for a couple of months before the game finally came out. Mm-hmm. But they still, to a person, said, "Well, we're not going to just release it because we'd rather be broke and have to hustle harder for a couple of months than put out something we're not proud of." And uh, you know, in their case, it, it worked out. Uh, so yeah, it was a really fun, refreshing story. But there, there are also, there's so many parallels. I mean, most, especially Crunch. Almost every company, whether they're indie or AAA, have to go through a crunch cycle that can make or break not only a game, but a lot of the people right. as well.
0: Mm-hmm. You bring up that uh, their, their decision to, to do that and risk going broke and everything. That reminded me of... Uh, from masters of doom when they described john carmack uh, talking to his boss at just a commercial non-game software company and go like hey a lot of people here depend on you and this is a reliable paycheck and doesn't that mean anything to you and he goes i would rather sell pizzas than to stay here any longer yeah he just he was going to do he was going to go make games no matter what and uh, it's it's that passion i think drives a lot of what we want to hear about in these stories
1: for sure, yeah, it's, I think passion, I think you're exa- exactly right. That really is kind of a, a guiding light. You don't want to talk to people who unfortunately, games will never be a nine to five, um, because yeah. you know one of the the details I talk about and stay while and listen to is the fact that the crunch, a lot of people burned out from it really hard. a lot of marriages failed, one guy had a breakdown and moved to the Philippines. It just had to get away from everything. Wow. And uh, But, you know, everyone was also honest in saying, you know, without that crunch, we never would have put in a lot of the features that we kind of thought up in the middle of the night, like mercenaries. You know, in Diablo two you could hire mercenaries to fight with you. That was something added near the end where someone was like, hey, this would be cool, and someone just did it. Right. Um, yeah. So it really does seem like this double-edged sword. I'm certainly not an advocate of crunch, but also just looking at it objectively, sometimes um, crunch leads to things that make games like Diablo 2, the sorts of games that are still on shelves today, you know, yeah. uh, over almost, well, almost 20 years later.
0: That, that's something I've had trouble communicating to people as well, because crunch comes up and there, there's a difference between I, no one would say I admire crunch or anything like that. But um, at the same time, if you're an indie or if you're not, if you're a professional and it, it comes to that, there are certain questions I can answer because I've worked in professional software. I've worked in indie game development, crunch is reality. And, and there, are, there are times when people go like, well, how could they possibly uh, justify whatever? And it's, it's just a simple matter of like, that's a question I could answer for you if you wanted to hear it. But then it's like, you support crunch. It's like, oh, no. but I just, I see it for what it is and I know why it's here.
1: Yeah, and I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's also something that can't be fixed overnight because if you were to fix it, there would be a lot of positives, but you would also break a lot of things, and we would have to scramble to figure out how to install new procedures and, and strata in the development process to figure out how to replace, how to fill that void
0: mm-hmm.
1: by crunch. You know,
0: That was one thing when the, uh, the whole BioWare story just recently came out, and everybody sort of hailed uh, Jason Schreier's work for that, which was very good, and it was very thorough. However... When like I think the word crunch was used twice, but they nobody went on record with the actual details of what they were doing, and and I I kind of got myself in hot water then too because I said like I would like to know what exactly was being asked of the people at these studios because it's it sounds bad it definitely sounds bad and if it's bad I would condemn that for sure but like it, it's worth talking about what exactly is uh, is is being done and who the pressure came from and like these situations have like somebody got scared. They were going to lose their job. So they worked 80 hours instead of 40 or 50. I, I think those details are important in a story like that.
1: They certainly are. Um, again, another example from Diablo two, a lot of the artists, you know, artists are usually one of the, the first ones to start working, doing concept art to kind of help other people understand the vision for the game. but they're also one of the first ones out, um, because once art is finished, it's a matter of coding and testing and so forth. Um, and a lot of the artists at Blizzard North said, you know, we worked the same crunch hours as the programmers, even though we were done because well, solidarity, you know, and they said, that's also important, but also like, we want to go home, but we, we didn't really feel like we could. So you're right. You have to ask, I mean, there've been how many scientific studies that show after so many hours productivity goes down. It's you know, sure. just because you're throwing yeah. more hours at someone doesn't mean they're going to accomplish more. Uh, you need to do more with less, not less with more. And yeah, I think it's really important to kind of understand what people are doing with that crunch time, especially yeah. because you know most people in the industry work on a salary, so they're they're really losing money by putting in those extra hours.
0: That's true, and and there's a, a very wide spectrum because my wife works in uh, the medical field. And so not only is there a, a point where those long hours turn into less productivity, but then there's also a little space and then the range where it starts to get dangerous. Like you yes. know, this person's first a danger to themselves and then they're a danger to the other people they're working with. You know, it's like, are you going to make a bad decision that hurts somebody? Um, so it may be for that reason that I, I sort of wonder when I when I see the word crunch, I think we we do need to talk about it because if we're going to fix it, we have to determine what's healthy, what's not. Um, you know, was this a fifty-hour week that got people upset, rightly so, or right. you know, was did somebody work forty-eight hours at once? You know,
1: right, right, right. Yeah, no, I I think it's really important to qualify and quantify. It's tough to talk about this stuff online because the internet has the internet is binary. You're either upset or you love something and it's just the best. It's yeah. it, there's really just not a lot of room for nuance there. So I think it's it's almost kind of um incumbent on on writers like Jason Schreier, maybe like me, like, like anyone covering this area, to make sure it's part of the conversation. You know, to take guesswork yeah. out of it and make sure to clearly illustrate this is happening. Here's what's happening. Here's why it's happening, and then kind of spur a conversation. Give people as much information as they can to kind of then reach their own conclusions. You
0: know? Yeah, I, I joke with a lot of people that I was the only person stupid enough to get into game journalism right in the middle of Gamergate, and then move to indie development right in the middle of uh, uh, <laughs> Crunch debate and all this controversy has followed me all the sure. while. It's it's the, I I say that, but like it's actually. Pretty reasonable. People have much worse stories than anything I've uh, gone through my audience. It's been really cool. That's
1: good. That's good.
0: Tell me a little bit about the ongoing – like you, you write so much. What's the ongoing uh, freelance writing like in the middle of these books and everything like that? I mean how's that affect you?
1: Well, over the past couple of years, I've, I've kind of winnowed out other clients until now I'm only writing for Shaq because uh, Shaq News pays me a steady – the same amount per month, almost a salary. Mm-hmm. to work on these long reads. And I think that's really cool. Asif Khan is the, the CEO and editor-in-chief over there. He's a great guy. We're actually neighbors. We live like eight minutes apart. Oh, nice. And he, he's actually, I don't know of anyone else who would pay me to take months to write one big thing and put it out. And uh, so that's those take a lot of time. And I thought, you know, since he's paying me steady, since I really love the work, and since... I know the hours I can set for myself and I know when I can work on Shaq and when I have time to balance other things. I'm just going to kind of use Shack as my main source of, of freelance income because it's it's always going to be there and I always understand it. Whereas, you know, I've written for, uh, for Vice, uh, Vice Waypoint, um, a lot of other sites, Paste, and they're great. But, you know, you have to constantly be pitching and that's a job in and of itself.
0: Oh, yeah, that's um, tough, yeah.
1: Yeah, I don't always have time to do that. I can spend the time I would normally spend writing pitches and waiting for someone to say, nah, uh, <laughs> working on my own books, pitching things to books to publishers, and and writing these long reads for Shack News, which I really enjoy.
0: And I, I love that long read format so much, um, not not just there, but when you see uh, less official versions of it elsewhere, like when, when the um – Matt Leone did that oral history of Street Fighter a year or so ago. Like, I read through that and I was like, oh, God, this is perfect. This is just perfect. This is exactly what I look for. Uh, You know, you find a topic come up in the news and somebody did an interview or something and it's over way too fast. Or somebody picks something else and writes too much about it and you weren't as interested in it. But when they find that sweet spot, it's like, ah, that hits the spot so hard.
1: It really does. I just, in fact, I just read Matt's uh, Street Fighter Two oral history a couple of days ago,
0: oh, and perfect. I think it was
1: a year or two ago. He did one on Final Fantasy VII, which was also fantastic.
0: Please excuse me.
1: <laughs> yeah, go check that out. Yeah, uh, no, it's great. And uh, you know, they're they're kind of everywhere. Um, well, not everywhere. They're actually more infrequent than I would like. But Vice did a really great one. Waypoint on um on halo and i Mm -hmm. like those but what i try to really do and i'm not saying i'm better but what i what i'm given the time to do because time is important uh is you know i could write those oral histories on shack in fact i did part of one chapter of beneath starless sky the longest chapter 50 some pages was an oral history of fallout 1 and 2 Mm -hmm. Uh, what i really like to do is combine the interviews with research and write narratives so that Mm -hmm. it's more engrossing than just you know, people talking back and forth, names
0: or, under one or another, yeah,
1: yeah, or q and A Q&A style interview, yeah. and you know, it, again, it's because I have the time to do that at Shack that, that makes those long reads possible.
0: This uh, most recent one with John Romero, uh, you know, how are things going with him compared to like the old the old Doom days? I mean, it's I know he's he's out in Ireland now. I don't know when he relocated that direction, but he seems like he's got a really fascinating day to day life now.
1: Yeah, he's, um, I think he's doing really well, not to put words in his mouth, but he's, what's cool about John Romero, I've talked to him several times now, one time I asked him, I said, you know, a lot of people will always remember you for Doom, Wolfenstein 3D, and Quake, but it sounds like, you know, he loves those games, obviously, but it sounds like, to me, you're just happy to be developing, no matter what it's for, he's like, oh yeah, Uh, whether it's iPhone, Facebook, PC, consoles, handhelds, I just love developing games. Mm-hmm. He's living his own dream. You know, he he and his family move out there. They they're running a new studio Romero Games. He's able to, I believe, mostly work from home. He's working on this Doom expansion. Um, he seems to be doing great. And uh Sigil's not out yet, but I've played through it and it's it's just fantastic. It it fits in so well with the original Doom, which I'm I'm one of the the outliers. I actually prefer Doom One to Two, so this to me was a natural extension of Doom One. It's just more of you know one of my favorite games. It's great.
0: Yeah, that that stance doesn't seem so outlandish to me at all.
1: That's, <laughs> uh, good. that's
0: they're, good. They're very different, very good things. So yes, um, having been to Ireland before, that's one of the the very rare trips overseas I've gotten to take. When they put out a call for more developers not too long ago, I could not believe when I saw them post up a second time, like, hey, we're still looking for the following. I'm like, good God, children, get, get going. <laughs> get out there for an interview and do the job.
1: Yes. Yeah, same same here. It's something I've thought about. I couldn't work in, in development. Uh, my programming days are long behind me, but um, it's such a beautiful part of the world.
0: It's so nice out there. Yeah. And, and I had a chance to talk to uh, Brenda not too long ago and not to spoil anything, but we're trying to figure out a way she might be able to come do an interview about getting into games and her experience, hiring people for games work and stuff like that. Like, it's just a very talented team there. So, yes, absolutely. But uh, I I guess that is one of the big differences between the writing side and the, the actual development side is writer as writers, we get to work wherever we're at, you know, we can do some telecommunication and meet all of our own needs. But like development, I've told people time and time again, if you really want to succeed in development, pick up your roots and be ready to take them wherever you need to go put them down. That's then right. yours is the kingdom. Like not otherwise, unless right. you want to just go indie and be somewhere else and do your own thing. Like you have those two options.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is basically a or B. <laughs> You're right. <laughs>
0: Um, what's something you're kind of eyeballing right now? I, I know you're coming off several projects, but like, are there other uh, games you want to write about companies, people?
1: Um, it, right now it's a lot of this, this novel shopping it around um, the book coming out in July, the book coming out and stay well and listen to, I am working on another book, uh, another secret project about a, a pretty well-known indie studio. Well, I guess I can say, cause they had the no clip documentary uh, system Era with mm. Um and uh, that that's something in progress. I'm working on a book with someone formerly at Nintendo, which is pretty exciting. Ooh. So, yeah, that's also on the horizon.
0: I know um, reading through Console Wars and, and hearing some of those accounts from the uh, early 90s between Nintendo and Sega was just, it's some of the best reading you can do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really good. Yeah. It's uh it's definitely, I know it's the funny thing. Blake Harris, Blake emailed me out of the blue a couple of years ago. He's like, Hey, I would love a copy of a hard copy of stay While well and listen, where can I get it? And this is before it was in print. It was uh, Kindle only. And I didn't, I didn't put two and two together. I didn't realize that this was Blake Harris, author of console wars. I just said, Hey, thanks for writing in hopefully it will be out eventually. Um, you know, just stay in touch. And he wrote back and he said, oh, I was thinking maybe we could trade books. Like I could give you one of mine. And I, did, I was like, a book from your collection? Like some book off your shelf? <laughs> and then I finally looked at his name like, oh. You wrote, oh. Like, you like was, cookbooks? Here you go. Yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah. What a, what a strange offer. I've never gotten that before. So that was just kind of a funny of how Blake and I met. But yeah, I really like Console Wars. It was really well written and engaging.
0: I had Blake actually on the line. Uh, We were conversing over Twitter right before uh, the history of the future. I think that's the title of the latest book. And, we had kind of that same thing you and I had where like the conversation like trailed off because the weekend we're getting ready for the following week and stuff like yeah, that. And then yeah. I jumped back in and go, hey, I, I'd love to set this up. I didn't do that with Blake and I missed the release of the book and I'll, I'll kick myself forever for that. Oh,
1: yeah, 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 that's too bad. But he's he's pretty open. I know um, for a while it was hard to put him down because he was on the set of console wars. I think I'm allowed to talk about that. Cause the movie was announced a while ago. I don't know where he's it is posted
0: in- about it several times. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he's, he can be a hard guy to pin down, but um, really great writer
0: uh, online activity. Where, where do you do the most now? Social media, uh, your own website, what goes on?
1: Um, I do like to blog on my website, davidlcradock.com. I usually, I try to post at least one blog a month because it's all I really have time for. What I really like to do is after a project comes down, I like to do a postmortem, which I call book breakdown, where I try to be really transparent and talk about how the project got started, the process of writing it, uh, where what I think could have been better, what I was really proud of. Um, social media, I don't really do a lot. I don't really like social media. It's kind of, to me, one of those necessary evils, but usually I'm on Facebook. I'm at, uh, at David L. Or not Facebook, Twitter, uh, at David L. Craddock. Awesome. I try to yeah keep people up to date with what I'm working on there.
0: I do I do like following writer blogs because there's no better way to uh, add stuff to your list of things to go check out and read. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. Pocket is my favorite app ever. There's so many like every day I have like ten to fifteen articles I hit that pocket button and then at night I crack open my iPad and just read through the articles.
0: Yeah, yeah. I love Pocket. What I what I really used to like was Google had their own RSS feed. Uh, collector with their own like keyboard shortcuts and it looked a lot like Gmail and you can yeah. just hit a couple of buttons go back and forth real rapidly between these news stories. I would keep up with like everything on dig and yeah. uh, put in several other news sites and book things and, and God, what a great way to do. And now it's like you almost have to rely on, uh, I feel like Twitter, uh, a couple places like that. And it's not nearly as fun.
1: No, it's really not. Um, yeah. I really liked, I think it was Google reader or SS reader, but they, they canceled.
0: <laughs> I feel like one
1: day we're going to wake up to find out that Google has canceled Google.
0: Right.
1: Uh, they just love to shut things down, Ugh, which is frustrating because I, I like a lot of their products, but I've gotten to the point where I'm almost leery to invest too much time into it. Cause I never know when they're just going to say, eh, and you know, pull the rug out from under me.
0: Well, that's a good, it's a good point because they've canceled several very high profile products. And now here soon, by the end of the year, they're going to want people to sort of buy into the idea of having them stream the video games, and we're not sure how the licensing is going to work yet, or the ownership, and we just have to kind of go, well, I bet Google will take care of us. Like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, like, all, all evidence to the contrary. I feel like the only Google app that's really safe, that's 100% bulletproof, is Gmail. Other than that, like, who knows? Anything else that feels like could be canceled?
0: That seems kind of fair, and... and Man, Uh, (laughs) what was funny was the uh, Google Stadia thing was announced right around the same time as um, Apple Arcade, and people were kind of like comparing notes between the two, and it's really apples and oranges, uh, so to speak, but (laughs) it was funny to see everybody go, well, Apple's going to do fine and Google's going to be a mess. (laughs) It's like, uh, I think maybe they'll both be a mess on that front. I'm not sure.
1: I think they're both going to be a mess and a lot will come down to which company will kind of stick with it to clean it up and make it something great. Yeah. And at this point I don't, it's it's so weird. I still don't I still don't think of Apple as a games company. You know, I had it's a friend hard, yeah. Up, yeah, I had a friend growing up who <clears throat> he had a Mac and I would just, I would ask him, like, you play games, right? What are you playing over there? Solitaire? Like, are you bored with that yet? We're over here playing Doom and StarCraft. And, and you know, I'm talking to a MacBook right now. They're great yeah. for productivity. But when it, for it comes to games, consoles, and I have a PC also here, you know, because you can play everything, guaranteed. And, 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 you know, Mac has a lot more compatibility these days. But I don't know. Games have never really seemed like something that Apple really cared about until now, I guess. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, and anybody who's released a, a mobile game in the iOS store that that didn't take the world by storm will tell you the exact same thing. It's like they don't yeah. know I exist, and they don't care.
1: Nope. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, in fact, they might not even care if, even if they know you exist because an iOS update might render your game uh, incompatible with new versions. And then you have to look at, well, how many players, how many active players do I have? Should I even bother bringing this over to iOS 12 or 13 or whatever they're up to? And you have the one or two hangers on, like, well, I really like this game, but then they have to choose between updating, which you want to, for security, if nothing else, or sticking with the old version to play this one game that they still really like.
0: It's true. What other platform will preemptively go, hey, this game does work right now?
1: Right. However. (laughs) I mean, imagine if, like... The Sony PS4 update was like, oh yeah, God of War no longer works. Like that just would not fly. <laughs> God know?
0: of War's developer needs to update their settings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a funny sure. idea. Yeah. So um, as as far as like we said, you've you've run several successful Kickstarters for books and things like that. Um, what what's your relationship with your readers? Have you gathered like good feedback from readers online, stuff like that, or is it just kind of like, here's what I'm putting out. I hope you like it.
1: Um, the latter. Uh, I've had a lot of people who, well, kind of like you who've told me like, Hey, I discovered this book and then went and read that book and went back and got this book. And, um, it's always kind of nice because I, I think that they, you know, I do have a voice and I think that they, especially for game books, I think they know my voice and know that I do my due diligence and, uh, do the best they can to tell an engaging story that's as for- informative as it is entertaining.
0: That's, that's excellent because uh, you hear the more you try to bring in, in terms of feedback, uh, you're, you're kind of rolling the dice a little bit
1: (laughs) for sure. Sometimes it's
0: super positive and sometimes it's super on target. And then sometimes it's like, I feel worse now than I did when I started (laughs) like farther (laughs) away.
1: That's true. And I'm kind of lucky because, you know, most of the game developers I've talked to have said, you know, we never go out. And plan to make a, a game that'll win game of the year. We just have to find an idea we really like. And we find that if we really like playing it, other other people will. And I found that to be true for me. If there are things I love writing about, turns out other people love to read them. So I think if my passion is there, the more passionate I am about a project, uh, the, the better the likelihood that other people will find it as enjoyable to read as I did to write.
0: I think that's an excellent point because, and it's it's similar to something I've told people many times. Because I talk to a lot of developers, they go, "We're working on this uh, idle clicker game or this little RPG or something," and then Minecraft came out, and it's so hard to look over and see them just taking the world by storm, and we can't even get approved on Steam yet and stuff. And I just tell people like, you have to pinpoint like the example of Minecraft. That was someone who pinpointed exactly what they wanted to do, what they were having fun doing. Yeah. and they did it, and sometimes you do that, and it doesn't take off, but much more often, people it does resonate with people because you're doing, you're, you've focused on your core offering, like you found what you're providing for the rest of the world, and the people who that's meant for, uh, you know, you, you may never capture other people, but your specific audience, that's the best way to get to them, by putting your actual true self out there, and not trying to be something else.
1: Yeah, don't just, you know, it happens all the time. We saw a lot of Minecraft clones spring up and the ones that did something new, kind of like Terraria are mm. the ones that had staying power. And now it's happening with battle Royale and, you know, don't just trade, chase trends. Like if you have an idea for how to add something to this genre, it will work, but don't just chase something cause it's popular. Do something that you want to do. I think, Tetris 99 is my favorite battle Royale game. And that's because yeah, it took the idea of battle Royale and it's like, you know, just kind of melded it with Tetris. That's, that's all they needed. And I, I love that game.
0: (laughs) That came out and I, uh, I played a few rounds and I was like, man, I really, I love what they did here. That's really cool. And then I kind of put it down for a week and then wow. they announced that first weekend contest, and that weekend could have ruined my life. Like I was just Tetris, <laughs> give, yep. me, give me those wins. I'm going to win that ten you know? dollars. <laughs> yeah,
1: man. Tetris can still. We've kind of had a um, a spoil of riches as Tetris fans because last year um, Tetris. Oh shoot, I'm blanking on the name, but the the VR game. Oh, the VR game, right? Yeah, for uh, for PS4. I haven't even played it in VR. I have a PSVR. It's just sitting there but I played it without um, VR Tetris effect and uh, oh, yeah. it was great. and Tetris 99 is great. And it's, you know, that's like an example of a company that's, you know, they're putting out still Tetris, but they're finding ways to make it more fun, you know, keep it, keep it fun.
0: Absolutely. But <laughs> Between Tetris uh, for PlayStation and uh, that Spider-Man game, I did not have a a PlayStation. They've never come closer to having me just go out to the store and then I could say like, it's not just for one game. It is just for two games, but (laughs) two is more than one. So, so compelling case, but yeah, that the Tetris stuff has been awesome for the first time in many years. Yeah. How much time do we have left on the uh, boss fight? Humble bundle?
1: Ah, that's, you know what? Suppose
0: I I got the show out today.
1: Yeah, suppose you get the show today, uh, April 15th. I think only a couple more days
0: Yeah,
1: to get that. Uh, it's doing really well. I mean, it's it's 19 uh, digital books for 15 bucks. Uh, you don't have to pay the 15. You can get you know pay a dollar and get a couple books. But 19 books for 15, that's a deal you'd be hard-pressed to, to match elsewhere. It,
0: that's as good a deal for those books as I've seen. So I would encourage people to go check that out and then uh, check out some more of your books. You've got a whole library all your own.
1: I do uh, check out David L. and at David L. Craddock on Twitter.
0: All right. Well, David, this has been awesome. Uh, come back at the, uh, at the next launch and we'll do this again.
1: Yeah, that sounds great, Todd. I'd love to, love to do it again.
0: As always, if you enjoy the game Dev breakdown podcast, you can follow along by subscribing anywhere podcasts are found. Please consider dropping us a rating and a review or tell a friend who's into this kind of thing. And if you want to go even further, check out how you can get involved with our new community over at patreon.com slash coderightplay. We'll be back very soon with more very cool stuff, and we can't wait to show you. So keep working hard, keep playing, and we will talk to you soon. Ken was
1: throwing the sign, peace. America was playing real like Zaxxon in the Middle East. But no matter how much my neighbor said the world would end, I was determined to play Missile Command till the
0: end. I wasn't a normal child who played with yak backs and clans. Cause I liked how that trackball felt like the world in my
1: hands. Each star was a space invader.